continue our study of the book of 1 Corinthians. We find ourselves this morning in chapter 11. The focus of our, passage, our sermon today will be from verses 2 through 16. That's found on page 958 in the Bibles that have been provided for you there in the rows if you do not have your own copy of the Bible with you this morning. First Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain their traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of, every, uh, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper, proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair itself, it is a, wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined, inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray for your help and for your glory and our understanding and in our lives. Lord, we thank you for this word. Use it to build your church, we pray in Christ's name. But you're thinking, what a, what a wild day to be invited to speak at New Hope Christian Fellowship. Katie, I'm really glad that you're with us today. Um, as Dan mentioned that you run track, uh, a memory came to mind. I, was a, I ran track in high school and, uh, and loved it. Uh, it was my sophomore year I was running the mile in one of our, against one of our local schools, just a two-team meet, and we're running along and, and thought I was doing pretty well, and, and we came down to the last lap, and for me, I really like to sprint hard the last turn of the race, the last hundred meters, I really tried to go hard to, to, to finish with a good, good kick, to, to finish the race. Now, a mile on a, on a standard track is four laps, and, and I noticed that as I was running this race that there was a, a girl right behind me throughout the whole race. She was a, a, a noted miler and uh, was expected to do really well in the state meet that year, and so I was nervous as we were running together, and I thought, well, if I can just 
keep her behind me until that kick. I'm sure I can out-sprint this girl. And so apparently she had the same strategy I had. And, and so as we came to this last turn in the race, I was really giving it all I got. And I was sprinting as hard as I could thinking, just don't let her pass you. Don't let her pass you. You've you got to answer to your friends. And wouldn't you know it, with 75 meters to go, this girl passed me like I was going backwards. <laughs> and finished like I was never ahead of her the whole race. The next year, I switched to running hurdles. <laughs> I share that because, our, because it's funny, and it's true. What do you run anyway, Katie? Oh, my goodness. Okay, so we've got a real athlete among us. Dan was not kidding when he said she could outrun us all, especially me. But one of the common misconceptions as we consider God's roles for men and women is, is that God has given roles because women are somehow inferior to men. And so as we tackle a passage that, that, that might seem strange to our ears, I want to do so by first coming at it from the perspective of, of making it clear that as we study the Bible, as we consider God's roles for men and women, both in marriage and in the context of the church, that it is not because one is lesser than the other, but because it is God's prerogative to establish things as he sees fit. And so I, I, I share the, the, the story of my humiliation just as a reminder to myself that Sometimes women are faster than men. Sometimes women are more godly than men. Sometimes women are smarter than men. And all of this is okay. And it is good. And, and, and we should glory in, in the ways that we are gifted before God. But, but, but giftedness does not outweigh what God has clearly revealed in his word. And we're not just talking about head coverings, but as we look at the, the, the counsel of God, we, we see clearly that God has ordered things in a certain way for his glory. And as I preach from this passage, I, I hope, men, that will, what will be ringing in your ears, whether you are married or single, young or old, is that you will hear a call to Humble devotion to the Lord. Ladies, I, I hope what you are here will hear this morning, whether you are married or single or young or less young, <laughs> that what you will hear this morning is a call to humble gratitude for who God is and what he has done. Now, our passage this morning, which might sound strange to some of us, marks another transition in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Now, over the past several weeks, we've been working through Paul's answers to specific questions that the Corinthians had raised in a previous letter to him. Should married Christians get divorced and live as 
singles in order to be free to, to, to serve the Lord more faithfully? Is sexual intimacy within marriage a hindrance to faithfulness? Well, was it wise for certain Christians to eat meals in the pagan temples? What was, was meat sold in the marketplace that had been previously offered to idols? Was that off limits? Is freedom of conscience grounds to, to do whatever we want? Or, or is there a greater principle that, that Christians must follow if we're to be faithful to one another in the church? Now, while Paul doesn't tell us exactly how the questions were worded, as we've studied the last several chapters, these are the answers, are the questions that we've seen answered. Now, beginning in in chapter 11, verse 2, Paul transitions to deal with problems in the church that were negatively affecting the the worship of the church. And and this isn't to say that what Paul has addressed so far in 1 Corinthians hasn't affected the church worship as well. But, But in chapters 11 through 14, Paul instructs, he confronts, and he guides the Corinthians to pursue practices which will make their worship services more orderly, thus making it more edifying to the saints and more clear to to unbelievers who might enter into the fellowship during worship. And most importantly, it was honoring to God. In in verses 2 through 16 of chapter 11, Paul reveals that, that the foundation of an orderly church is centered on God's design for authority in the church, but also in the home. In fact, as we look at chapter 11, Paul is writing primarily in these first verses to husbands and wives. I'll I'll get to that in more detail in just a few moments. And, and, And while we may debate among ourselves and with other Christians as to whether or not the issue of wearing head coverings still applies to the church today, the the principles of headship and unity that, that Paul gives us in these verses are clear, and they are reinforced throughout the New Testament and, and have been the faithful practice for churches from the book of Acts to this very day. God's designs for his people and for his church are grounded in his infinite wisdom, his perfect love, and his right to be glorified in all that he does. And it is my prayer, brothers and sisters, that he would be glorified in how we listen to and apply this passage in our lives as well. Now, I want to warn you this morning that as we tackle this passage, we're going to spend the bulk of our time in the first point, which encompasses most of the verses in this section with touching on some principles in the second, and then I want to apply it as I close this morning for us as a church. And so we're going to to, to look at this really under two headings, the first one being understanding headship. And we see this in verses 2 through 10, and then then again in verses 13 through 16. I'm going to read this a section at a time. So so let's look first at verse 2. Paul writes, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Now, 
up to this point, the, the problems that existed in the church in Corinth have been well chronicled, have they not? We, we, we've seen it, Paul's writing with both gentleness and boldness in calling this church to, to change and to embrace a greater faithfulness to the Lord. And Paul begins this section by commending them. He's, he's, he's encouraging them because they remembered him and the teaching that he had delivered to them. Now, when we hear the word tra traditions, we, we tend to, to commonly think of, of aspects of church life that may not necessarily be a part of Scripture, but that the church practices on an ongoing basis. We, we think of some churches as being traditional in their worship, meaning they have a, a, a liturgy that they follow, and they, they sing primarily hymns and, and maybe do responsive readings. Some pastors, or some churches, the, the pastors even wear a robe. Now, this isn't the type of tradition that Paul has in mind as he writes that in verse 2. And I would like to say that those traditions are, there's nothing wrong with those traditions. It can be a great way to honor and show reverence for the Lord in various worship styles. But as Paul writes about tradition, he, he, he's writing about what he's actually taught them. That's actually what the, the, the Greek word that's translated traditions means. Paradosis means the teachings. Paul is, is commending them for the fact that they've sought to remain true to what, he's, what he taught them while he was present with them. Now we need to keep in mind as we read 1 Corinthians that the Corinthians did not have the completed Bible as we do. So there were, there were aspects of the mistakes that they made that were born in ignorance and sin, but not sin of having something revealed that they had rejected. So, so much of what we find in the New Testament is, is written as a corrective and, and an instructive to, to help the church see where they've departed from what is good and, 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 and health, healthy for the church. So, so what they had, they had received from Paul and, and the other leaders who had taught them. And, and in spite of all their failings, Paul commends them for their efforts at following what they had learned from him. But we see in verses 3 through 10 that, that, that Paul reveals they have much more to learn concerning how they should function as a church. Look at verse 3. Paul says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who, who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or to shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was a man created for a woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, the key to understanding 1 Corinthians 2, 11, 2 through 16 really centers around the word that occurs 13 times in this passage. And that's the word head. Headship 
denotes authority. We, we all know what it means to live under various forms of authority because God has designed the world to operate in this way. In this way. As you read the New Testament, you learn that the, the Christian response to, to various, you, you learn about the Christian response to various forms of authority that we encounter in this life, both godly authority and ungodly authority. The, the Bible answers the question as to how Christians should live faithfully under an ungodly government system, our ungodly rulers how slaves should live faithfully under the rule of or authority of their masters, how employees should serve their employers, how children should submit to their parents' authority, how spouses are to relate to one another, and the list goes on. The Bible is not silent concerning the Christian's response really to all forms of authority, most importantly, God's authority in our lives. To, to live in this world is to deal with authority in a number of areas. As you drove to church this morning, you were expected to follow traffic laws. There were lights and signs which gave parameters on how you were supposed to drive. In just a few short weeks, your taxes will be due. At, at your schools and places of employment, there are expectations laid out for what is appropriate to wear, how you should behave, and so on. Systems of authority are designed to produce order and a framework in which we are to live in harmony. And, and the same is true within the context of the church and the Christian home. Now, we've learned so far in our study of Corinthians that the church got it wrong in a number of areas, and, and the results were, were devastating within the church and, and were also devastating to the church's witness to the culture. From what we can glean from, from the context of this letter, there was a crisis of authority in Corinth. This was seen in the existence of the, the factions, the divisions in the church, where they were aligning themselves with different leaders. Broken relationships? And it's also seen in the chaos that existed in the worship service. Now Paul addresses these issues with a lesson on God's authoritative design for the church and the family, a design which revolves around understanding true headship. In verse 3, Paul lays out the principle of headship. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, while this verse seems clear enough at first blush, there are a couple of things that, that need to be pointed out for greater clarity. The, the first is very important, and it's a linguistic issue. Verses three, in verses 3 through 16, you see the word man and husband used over and over again, do you not? And in every case except for one, it is the same Greek word that's translated either man or husband. Every case except for one. That's why I said earlier this is, this is just as much or, or, or more so about how, how husbands and wives relate to one another than it is necessarily men and women in the church. Husbands, wives, or, or hus man, husband, used over and over again. The one exception is in verse 3, where Paul writes, The head of every man is Christ. 
In that case, there's a different Greek word used altogether. And it's the word that's used to indicate at times mankind or people. So as Paul writes, the head of every man is Christ. I believe what Paul is indicating there is, is Paul is referencing that the head of, of all people is Christ. All believers is Christ. The distinction exists, even though the word translated head, or man in the case of the head of every man is Christ, can also be translated to mean man. It's a different word, and I believe Paul chooses it to make a distinction between all the other times He uses the word that's translated man or husband throughout the rest of the passage. Does that make sense? There's a distinction that is drawn there. And so Paul isn't saying that that Jesus isn't Lord over wives as well. Jesus is Lord over men and women. But there is a design to what should take place in the home. The husband, we see throughout the New Testament, is, is called to serve as, as the head of his home, the, the, the head of his wife, but not every other woman in the church. Ephesians 5.22 says this, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. His focus here is on the relationship between husbands and wives, not all men in the church. But this relationship, this Familial relationship is what brings stability to the church. Paul begins his assertion on headship, or his statement on headship with the assertion that Christian men and women are under the headship of Christ. He is our authority. And then Paul begins to to, to focus on a lesser authority. And that's the authority in the home where men are called to spiritually lead their wives. Paul then goes on to to, 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 to point to the fact that even Jesus Christ was subject to the authority of God the Father. Remember Philippians chapter 2. Jesus laid aside aspects of his deity and submitted himself fully to God's will to the point of, of dying for our sins. This doesn't mean that Jesus became less God than God the Father. They were equal all along, along with the Holy Spirit. But but in the gospel, we see a difference in role between the Father and the Son and, and honestly also the Holy Spirit. And this is the same kind of differences that that, that Paul is advocating between husbands and wives. We are equal before God because in Christ we have been accepted by God. He is Lord over us both. Headship does not give the husband a greater importance than the wife because they are both subject to the Lord Jesus. Remember Ephesians 5.22? Submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. What's in play here is clearly a difference of roles. In the home and in the church, the husbands are called to lead spiritually in a way that reflects the headship of Christ, that we are submitted to him. 
In verses 4 through 10, Paul applies this principle to a problem that existed in the public worship in Corinth. And this is where it might get a little strange for some of us. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Now, these verses do pose a challenge for us because we we really don't have anywhere else in Scripture where this particular issue is addressed. And there have been a a number of theories as to why this was an issue within the church at Corinth, but I really think there are two that stand out as the most helpful. And the first comes from an archaeological source. We know what life was like back in Corinth. We know how the people lived and how they worshipped in the pagan temples. And the first idea for this, why Paul is writing about head covers, flows from that. The, the priest and, and other men who worshipped in the pagan temples, they, they wore what we could really describe nowadays as hooded robes. And, and so when they would go into worship and, and come before the idol to bow down and pray, they would actually cover their heads and bow in prayer to these pagan deities. As followers of these Pagan deities would, would come to know Christ and, 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 and become believers. They would come and they would bring these practices into the Christian church. They didn't know any better. Anyone that has, has, has led someone else to the Lord or, or discipled someone that was young in the faith will tell you that faith will, will tell you that oftentimes they bring who they once were and those practices in with them as they come into the Christian life. They don't know any better. They need to be taught and led. And so the the view is that Paul is writing here to say, listen, that's not how you worship the Lord. And here's the principle why. Remember Paul's approach to ministry in Corinth? Remember when he came to town, he he didn't ask for money. He, He didn't do anything like the pagan philosophers did. He wanted it to be clear that the gospel that he proclaimed wasn't just another philosophy. But he was proclaiming the one true God, so he he didn't take money from the church. He didn't seek money in the context of the marketplace where they would pay the philosophers, but he got a job. You remember that? Paul wanted to do all that he could so there wouldn't be any confusion about the God that he served and the other gods that were worshipped in the community. You see the same thing here as, as Paul makes it clear that, that, that coming to worship like you do in the temple is not acceptable in the church of Jesus Christ. Idolatry is not compatible with Christianity. So, so, so Paul's following that same example by saying, you should not follow the example of the pagans. There should be no confusion between the God you worship now and the God you once worshipped now, the second view 
actually comes from the context of the passage, verses 13 through 16, where Paul writes, Judge for yourself, is it, not, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, the Greek word that's translated uh, covering literally means that which hangs from the head. So, so the second view here is that, that Paul is actually talking about a, a problem with, with, with the women looking like men with shaved heads and the men looking like women with long hair. Now, you need to understand this is a, 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 the, the, what's long or not is a, is a culturally relative idea. All right? For me, if I see a guy with hair to his shoulders, I think, that's some long hair. If you remember in ancient times, though, the, the, the ladies would often grow their hair very, very long. And so what was considered long for a man might be a little bit longer than what we are comfortable with. It's not the issue of, of whether we think it's long or not, but it's understanding it culturally that there was a problem with women looking like men and, and, and men looking like women. And, and Paul's saying, listen, that's bringing confusion to the church. There's probably some validity to both understandings of this passage. Remember, Paul is, is talking about living in such a way that is orderly. And so for, 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 for unbelievers to come in, it, it would need to be clear that, that the church was following God's design for the church and the family. So, so, so whether Paul was rejecting pagan practices or, or a call to ensure that the men and women of the church reflected their God-given roles in their appearance, Paul's reasoning going forward remains the same. Now before we go much further, there's something else we need to see from verses 4, four and 5 as it relates to the dishonoring of our head. Paul writes, every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovers Uncovered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Now, if we're keeping in mind that headship is God's design, Paul is emphasizing in these verses the importance of doing things God's way. So, understand it this way. Every man who prays with his head, his physical head covered, dishonors his spiritual head, Jesus Christ. You see that transition there. And the same is true in the context of the wife. Every wife or, or, who prays or prophesies with her head physically uncovered dishonors her head, her spiritual head. And also Jesus, uh, her spiritual head, her husband, and also Jesus who established his role. So the, so the point going forward is that orderly worship must reflect God's established authority and, and is essential for the church to honor our spiritual head, Jesus, our Lord. So, so if we were going to summarize the argument from verses 4 through 10, it would be as follows. Those called to lead within the church should not follow the, the example of the unsaved with covered heads, but, but should instead worship God with heads uncovered as the sign that they were following God's created order and design of authority. Conversely, wives should cover their heads as a sign that they too were following God's design and authority by following the spiritual leadership of their husbands. 
The, the covering serves as a, as a symbol of the wife's willful submission to God's authority. In verse 5, Paul writes that wives who, who prayed with their heads uncovered dishonored their head, their husbands, making it the same as their heads being shaved. Now, it's important that we understand that, that, that Paul isn't anti-cultural shorter haircut in our day. It's important that we realize as we look at the, the, the culture in Corinth, there were only three types of women who had shaved heads or short haircuts. The, the first were the feminists, the second were the prostitutes, and the third were those women who had been caught in adultery. And so if you went around town with a, with a buzzed head, ladies, or, 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 or a cute pixie haircut, people viewed you as one of the three. Now, if you're a part of the church of Jesus Christ, would that be what you wanted to communicate to those who did not know the Lord? Of course not. So, so Paul said, listen, it is, it is a dishonor for the women in the church to do that because in a sense, they're, they're broadcasting to the world that they're rebellious. Does that make sense? To, to, to say that, that, that to, to, to pray or to prophesy with heads uncovered should just shave their head was to say that they were acting in rebellion, not just against their husband, but against Christ himself. That is a, a powerful statement, so much so that Paul reiterates it in verse 6. He says, For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair short or shave her head, let her cover her head. You see why context and understanding the culture is so important as we look at these passages? Again, it was the rebellious women who shaved their heads. So Paul's point is clear. If you're going to rebel against God's authority, his design, go all in so, so, so the world will know. And then in verses 7 through 10, Paul appeals to the creation order as another basis for this principle of headship and submission in the church and the home. It says, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but a, a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, we're not going to do this because of time, but if you flip back to Genesis chapter 2, you have the, the, the account from uh, creation of God creating Eve from Adam did so from one of her ribs. You remember that? In doing so, God created for Adam the perfect partner and helper. Before God created Eve, Adam was incomplete. God himself had said it was not good for the man to be alone. And Eve was complete, created to complete what was lacking in Adam. In 1 Corinthians 11, 7 through 10, Paul uses this as one of the reasons while there needed to be a sign that the wife was subject to her husband's headship in the church. Because that sign would also reflect God's design for marriage. Notice that Paul writes of Adam and Eve and the created order as established facts. This is another one of those important passages that the New Testament gives us to help us view the old. The Bible treats Adam and Eve not as 
figures that never existed or, or, or some sort of mythology, but as actual people who rebelled against God's authority. See this throughout the New Testament. See it in, in Romans. You see it in the, in the gene, genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, where Luke traces the lineage of Jesus all the way back to Adam. Can't do that with a fairy tale. So why this rabbit trail in the middle of an already too long sermon? <laughs> well, it's simple. Even in the context of evangelical Christianity, there are those who call into question whether or not Adam and Eve were real. <laughs> Did God really create them that way? Listen, there, there are different genres of writings in the Bible. There's poetry, there's history, there's law, there's prophecies, there's figures, there's imagery throughout the Bible. There are apocalyptic passages, and it's important to identify what we are reading, but it is also vital that we as Christians apply this to your life, learn to read the Bible, and interpret it through what the Bible says about the Bible. If Paul and Luke treat, and Jude treat Adam and Eve and their creation as a historical fact, then so must we. The, the appeal to the created order as, as the basis for male, male headship is in no way an attack on the value of women. The, the equal standing between men and women have before God, that, that's unchanging because of Christ. As I said before, women can be just as wise or, or even wiser or more godly and, and even more faithful than men. The, the appeal to the created order simply states that this is how God designed it to be. Now, there have been several plausible arguments that have been made on the basis of how men and women are different and better suited for the roles that God has given, and, and that's fine and good. But at the end of the day, isn't it enough to look at God's word and say, well, this is how God said it should be? If God tells me that I am to, to lead spiritually in my home and serve my wife in such a way that, that reflects Christ's love for the church, that should humble me to the point where I'm not going to think more highly of myself, but I'm going to recognize that the only way to do it is with God's help. I'm going to look at my wife, who's not here so I can talk about her, and see ways that she is smarter and more faithful and rather than be challenged by that, I can thank God for ways that, 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 that he uses her in our family to help us be more faithful. Because I'm going to give an account doesn't mean that she doesn't play an essential role in the, in the spiritual health and, and direction of our family. But God has said, that there are ways, men, that we must step up. And we must. God said so. This is how, in his wisdom, he designed things to be. In verse 10, we, we, we see that even angels who are way more powerful and glorious than we are serve as ministering spirits 
They, they submit to God's plan for God's people, for God's purposes. So Paul says, listen, you, you, you see it in creation, you see it in God's design, you, you, you see it throughout. This is the way we've called it to be. But within this concept of headship, there is also unity. Look at verses 11 and 12 quickly. Paul writes, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. These verses highlight the the harmony that exists within God's design. Eve, the first woman, was created from Adam, but now all men are born from women. And this is God's design. Verse 11, Paul writes, In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. And this is true of more than simply creation and birth order. We we see it in the Bible's teaching on marriage as as a living illustration of the gospel. A a husband who loves sacrificially with the aim of of building up his wife in the faith and is honoring the Lord. But that picture is incomplete without a wife who respects her husband and responds to that leadership. As we come to understand that we are one in the Lord and under God's authority, we come to appreciate God's design. Again, men aren't better than women nor women than men. Harmony exists as we love and serve one another for the glory of God. Now, I realize that I've barely scratched the surface for for some of the questions that you may have about this passage, but, but don't worry, Paul brings us back. In chapter 14, he's not done yet. So ladies, should you wear head coverings or not? Well, the short answer is this is a a matter of conscience as as there are certainly other ways that your life should reflect that you are following God's design. But there are those that do so out of conviction And it falls on those of us who don't to respect that conviction in their lives. It comes down to whether you view this passage as as being, or understand this passage as being a a, a timeless command as it relates to women always wearing head coverings in the context of the worship service, or you view it as a custom. But for the body of Christ, this cannot be a hill that we die on. Respect one another in love. This is not a, a, a gospel issue. What, what, what you need to be doing and what, ladies, we, you, you ought to pursue is, is not just the outer, but how does my life reflect God's order? Husband, the, the question is the same for you. How does your life reflect God's order? In terms of application today, I simply have one. It is high time, brothers and sisters, that we take seriously God's calling on our lives. Our salvation was purchased at the highest price, the death of the Son of God. And Jesus lays absolute claim over every area of our lives. And this is a good thing. There is joy in doing things God's way. There is joy in growing spiritually and drawing near to God in faith. Husbands, your position is not due to anything special about you. 
And all the men said, Amen. But God has called you. God commands you to lead, and you better take it seriously. You must love and serve your wife in such a way that she is built up in her faith, that that she learns and and has the opportunity to make use of her gifts and, and allow her to flourish as a woman of God. You are to lead not on the basis of your own whims, but under the lordship of Christ. You recognize that you answer to someone greater than yourself. Ladies, remember, no matter how well or poorly your husband leads, God's assessment of you and your faithfulness is what is most important. What God says is key. I want to encourage you to to resist the message of the world that, that, that you are missing out on something about doing it God's way. You're not. Live with and love your husband as a reflection of your love for the Lord. Respect his efforts to lead well and and be patient when he falls short. The marriage relationship, brothers and sisters, must be encompassed in the grace of God. And it must be marked by mutual humility and submission for the glory of God. Let us pray together.